Good morning, everyone. I've been a little stressed for the last half an hour, not about this, but about the fact the guys at the back might activate my mic by mistake during the worship, <laughs> and the service would grind to a halt. But good morning. It's not every day that you get a voicemail on your phone from your pastor asking you to preach in church on Sunday. And while my assumption when I got that voicemail from John, given the series we were on, is that he wanted me to talk about healthy, clean living or living a textbook marriage, I still took a few days to call him back while I tried to think of good reasons to wriggle out of it. But John, as you may find out, is a persistent man, and he called again and again. So eventually I called him back, quite determined not to do a sermon, even when he clarified the topic was finance and money, which I'm quite comfortable with. Because you see, while I'm comfortable talking to a room of bankers or fund managers, where it's business topics, you can make it up, it's your opinion, it's a bit more intimidating to be in front of a church like this, where there's one source of the truth, one word, and lots and lots of opinions from what I understand. And mixing money and religion also isn't a comfortable topic, especially for Christians like us, especially for rich Christians like us. But as I said, John is a persuasive man. So despite my protestation, here I am. He did make it a bit easier for me by saying I didn't need to talk about tithing, but that it didn't need to be part of the content. I didn't need to ask anybody to give any money, although the church's bank details are on the website if anybody feels so moved. <laughs> but I do, however, recognize saying that, that giving and generosity are key principles when we talk about money. And while not part of today's sermon, I understand from John it will be part of a series later in the year to be addressed by people more skilled and able than myself. On a lighter note, to reflect quickly on giving, Mother Teresa had a philosophy on giving, some of you may be familiar with. And Mother Teresa said quite simply, give until it hurts. Now John said I was an accountant, and that's a philosophy that's quite easy for us accountants to align ourselves with because giving hurts from the very first round. <laughs> what I will note, John, John was looking for fun facts, um, and I didn't give him any, he made his own one up there. Here's a fun fact, John. I grew up Anglican, so I'm well-versed in serious, thorough sermons. So there'll be no walking the stage air-punching, like we saw from Jacques last week. <laughs> and for those of you who were here on Wednesday night in Jackie Mungavin's workshop on, on on our souls, it's not gonna look like that. I actually fear if you were there, I may be one of the boring people that she spoke about. But anyway, let's get into it. Let's talk about money and the Bible. Most of us have a complicated relationship with money. We either want more of it, or if we have enough, we struggle with guilt and feel we should be doing more with what we have. Money is also dangerous. It drives greed, corruption, as we've seen in our country around us, and it drives the breakdown of relationships. So a leading cause of divorce is disagreements over money. So money is key in our lives. Most of us see money as a worldly possession, something that's separate from our faith, separate from our beliefs, and nothing to do with the Bible. Our views of money and possessions are generally shaped by society, social norms, and our own wants and our own selfishness. And I can relate to that. 
again, as an accountant, and I see other accountants in the room, we struggle with this. We are trained from the start to be responsible with money. Gather it, protect it, stow it away for the worst possible scenario. Giving is not part of the syllabus when you're trained to be an accountant. But interestingly, while it is a worldly possession, money is a topic of huge prevalence in the Bible. Did you know that there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible which deal with money or possessions? Jesus talked about money more than almost any other topic. Almost half his parables deal with money in some form. What that says to us is that God knew what a barrier money and possessions could be to our relationship with him and, to the, and the word of God is thus an authority on money. There are a number of verses which reflect its importance, the value it can bring, as well as warning of the dangers. And I want to spend a few minutes just unpacking some of those. And as I go, I'd like to challenge each of you. Okay, we're getting rid of some of the banging, I think. I'd like to challenge each of you as we go along to ask yourselves, how am I doing? So, to set the scene and to set the bar high, by any measure, as I said earlier, most of us in this church would be considered rich by worldly standards. The Bible tells us that rich people will find it harder to get into heaven. Our relationship with money and with possessions is more complicated than most. There's a revealing story in Matthew 19 which gives some context to this. A rich, wealthy young man comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, what good things must I do to get eternal life? Jesus replies that he must obey the commandments. The man, man responds to say he's kept all the commandments and asking what more he must do. Jesus replies again, tells the man, sell your possessions and give it all away to the poor and you will then receive the treasure of heaven. The man goes away disillusioned with that advice. While he is happy to do good deeds, to follow the commandments, his possessions are too important to him to give away, like he's been told to. Jesus then says to his disciples in verses 23 and 24, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus' response to the man to give it all away is not saying if you are blessed with financial resources that you must give it away. It's also not saying that rich people won't be saved and won't enter heaven. It was Jesus' way of revealing in that instance how that man felt about his money, that that man valued his possessions above all else he would choose to maintain his lifestyle over eternal life. In other words, that his wealth had become a hindrance to him and had to be given away to free him. A number of times through the Bible, we are warned that the love of money is the root of evil and that money, when badly managed, can cause financial bondage for all of us. Now, financial bondage is the opposite of financial freedom. Financial bondage can take many different forms. It can be the love of money, wanting more of it. It can be not being able to afford the life we want, yearning after more. It can be not being able to support our families because of bad spending choices. It can be overwhelming debt levels, 
and the stress that that brings. What all these forms of bondage have in common is that they cause money to become the central focus of our lives, driven either by greed or stress or other factors. They create barriers to our relationships with each other and to our relationship with God. Now, the Bible teaches a number of principles which shine a light on how we can move away from bondage towards financial freedom. But before we get into those principles, in preparing for this, I found a useful way to reframe how I thought about money was to talk about stewardship. We're all familiar with the principle of tithing. However complicated you find that topic, whatever form tithing takes in your life, we all understand the basis of tithing is that we are giving God his money. It is God's. We are merely stewards or managers of that portion and giving to God what is his. So as the Bible says, rendering to God what is God's. But what about the rest? What about the portion we don't give, the 90%? Again, what is clear through the Bible is that everything comes from God. It all belongs to Him. It is also evident that God uses financial stewardship to determine how much to trust us spiritually. In Luke 16, it says, Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if we reframe the narrative and agree that your money and possessions are all God's anyway, that you are just a steward or a manager of that money, perhaps even being tested, how does that change your thinking? Ask yourself the question, if in life, what if you were just God's money manager? Would you manage that money any differently? Would, you, would your spending look any different? Would your tax returns look the same? The Bible, as I said, gives a number of tools which teach us how to better manage money and ultimately to achieve financial freedom. Proverbs in particular is a rich source through a number of the verses on this topic. I've listed here four practical principles which I think have particular relevance and impact for most people. All of these are illustrated again and again throughout the Bible through a number of verses. Those are work hard, set priorities and plan your spending, save and avoid debt. All pretty simple on the face of it. Now the first three of those principles are well captured in Proverbs 31. And I've extracted some of the relevant verses from that, from that book to demonstrate this. It reads, She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. And when it snows... She has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. The woman being described here works hard, sets her priorities, which is providing food for her family. She plans her spending wisely, as we see in verse 16, and she plans for the future and saves. 
And if I reflect on it now, actually the fourth principle, avoiding debt, is also covered here. So she doesn't plant the vineyard out of borrowing money, she saves first. So all four principles covered in that chapter. Now the context of these verses is King Lemuel, and I hope I'm saying that right, King Lemuel, is describing a wife of noble character. That on the face of it might seem like a chauvinistic selection of verse, but on the contrary, I see it as quite apt. That is a woman described as having all these characteristics. Often on matters of money, if I look around me, hard work, setting priorities, it is us men who can learn a lot from women. But again, that's perhaps a topic for another sermon. So, let's provide some quick practical insights on each of these four principles. The first one is work hard. The Bible is particularly critical of fools and sluggards. It's a great word for lazy people. There's a clear message throughout the Bible that we are expected to work hard and that if we show skill in our work, our jobs will grow. So if we apply this to our jobs and in our businesses, we can't sit back and rely on luck or faith or wishful thinking to bring rewarding success. To be rewarded, to get promoted, to grow our businesses, the Bible is clear, we need to work hard. And if you fail through no fault of your own, and that happens all the time, the message is get up, get back to it, and keep working hard. The Bible does also say we can enjoy the fruits of our labor. And that can be a bondage for some people. It needn't be a bondage, as long as we remember that where it comes from, and don't allow it to become the most important thing in our lives. To link back to last week's message, there's a strong link between the principle of working hard and time management. That applies in our jobs and our businesses as well. So if you were here last week, listening to Jacques' message, what I'm trying to say is be a swallow, not a hardy dar in the workplace. The next principle, priorities are different for every person. Although there are some biblical non-negotiables, such as the need to provide for your family first, as we've also seen in the verse we just looked at, in modern terms, the Bible is telling us to set priorities with our money. Put aside enough to cover essentials, what you need to survive before spending on luxuries, putting your needs before your wants. Again, that seems pretty obvious, but perhaps less so in our society, which often craves instant gratification. Young couples who want the house their parents had on day one, the FOSS car after paycheck one, or parents who feel the need to buy that Xbox to please their children before paying their home loan installment or before paying the school fees. It's about priorities. The truth is that ultimately, financial freedom is most often not determined by how much you make, but rather on how much you spend. I'll say that again. Financial freedom is most often not determined by how much you make, but rather how much you spend. And you can only really know and control where you spend and how much you spend if you have a plan or an accountant speak, a budget, and you stick to it. If you've never done this exercise, you'll be surprised by where you're wasting money, what you're spending your money on, and that's why we say having a financial plan is important. Speaking of priorities brings us on to savings. And here's a newsflash, not only wealthy people save. 
the Bible is clear. Investing and saving are key activities to provide for our future and to avoid financial ruin. To bring this principle close to home, South Africa has a savings problem. We have an average savings rate of close to zero. So that means for every rand one of us saves, someone else is borrowing that amount and more on their credit card or something else. Only 40% of South Africans have any form of retirement savings plan. And only 6% of South Africans can afford to retire independently. The rest of us will rely on family, friends, or the government. All of that is a recipe for financial stress and gives control of your life to money. Money will become all-consuming above all else. To avoid financial stress, we need to find a way to prioritize savings for the future above our short-term wants, so above our holidays and above luxuries. And the earlier you start, the better. The power of long-term compounding interest on your ultimate investment is immense. Do the maths. So, I'm sure all of your financial advisors, being rich Christians, keep telling you to save. But if you don't want to listen to him or her, do it because God says so. And then the final principle, and possibly the most important one of all, avoid debt. Or as I would reframe it, avoid bad debt. In Proverbs 22, it says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. The Bible is again clear and persistent at the potential evil of debt. It equates bad debt to slavery. Now, I work for an organization, as you heard, which lends people money for what I consider to be good reasons, to buy homes. So I have no doubt that responsible debt can create wealthier, happier, more secure families. Whereas my life group can confirm, I often say, it changes lives. I also have no doubt, having observed it up close, that bad debt ruins lives and ruins families. Again, if we bring it home to South Africa, there's some scary numbers. 25 million South Africans have some form of debt. That amounts to about 2 trillion rand of debt. Less than half of that is for housing. The other half is credit cards, personal loans, car loans, etc. And 40% of those South Africans are in some form of default on that debt. Again, if you want to talk financial bondage and financial stress, there it is. So we need to distinguish between good debt, that's debt we can afford to buy houses or to invest in our businesses, and bad debt, that's debt we can't afford to buy luxuries we don't actually need. We talked about the positive power of compounding interest on your savings. The flip side is the destructive power of compound interest on things you buy on credit is even more extreme. If you buy a car on credit or a fridge on your credit card, sit down and work out what you pay for it at the end of the day. I think you'll be blown away. So what am I saying? Think twice, thrice, and a fourth time before financing the lifestyle you want through debt you may not be able to afford or risk becoming a slave to your bank and allowing money worries to drown out all else. 
Now, I covered those principles at a high-level, hardy-dar view. Today was more about unpacking biblical context and biblical teachings about money and demonstrating how those link back to these practical principles. The church has supported that with the Wednesday workshops. So Rich Payne has run Wednesday workshops with practical tips and insights and tools on money management. And there's one more of those this week. If though this is an area of interest or some area you still struggle with, there are some great resources available. Like Dave Ramsey of Financial Peace University, which I can highly recommend. Again, our life group did a series on this over the course of about a month. There's some great insights and tips which you can apply in your day-to-day life. How to pay down your debt, how to save, how to budget, how to plan, and great little tips like having emergency funds for that unexpected event. So, as I said, if this is a struggle for you, look at the website. I think it's up there on the screen. It's www.daveramsey.com or try and get your hands on one of the DVD series and, and give it a go. So in closing, the principles I've listed are important, but to move it to a deeper and more theological level, as the very first step on this journey, I'd like to leave you all with a challenge, and that is to seek financial contentment as the first step towards financial freedom. Seek financial contentment as the first step towards financial freedom. The world around us constantly tries to make us feel discontent, wanting more. I said earlier that most of us here are rich, and I saw raised eyebrows. I'm aware many of us don't feel rich, are battling to pay the bills, have too much debt. The question is to what extent our issues or our discontentment are not feeling rich, are looking through a worldly lens, the lens of the society in which we live, resenting or craving what others have or demeaning what we have brings bondage and brings stress, whereas contentment is rooted in God. It's not about how much money we do or don't have. Contentment means being at peace with who I am. It means being at peace with the skills God has given me and then working hard to maximize those skills and the rewards they may bring. Contentment means being successful in the ways that God measures success. Thank you. Church family, uh, I want to nod to Rob's Anglican heritage and say this, hear the word of the Lord. We heard God speak to us today, and Rob, thank you so much. And I think we should stand and end and give glory to God and, and say thank you for all that he has provided us with and ask him to provide us, first of all, with contentment and peace and to make us good stewards. Let's stand together.